This is Fundraising Radio, and today our guest speaker is San Ali, investor at 2048 Ventures and founding member of 1K Project. In this episode, we're going to talk about deal sourcing, reaching out to investors, creating your pitch deck, and not investing in Bay Area. So, Zan, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on 2048 Ventures. Of course. Uh, thank you so much, first of all, for having me on, Constantine. This is uh, great that you're doing this podcast and excited to be involved. Um, so, you know, just to start, I think it'd be helpful to give a little bit about my background and, and somewhat of, you know, my nonlinear path into venture. So, I started my career in financial services in various strategy roles um, within kind of large financial services organizations. And over time, I, I found myself kind of gravitating towards the more innovative projects that were happening within these large companies. And eventually, that kind of morphed into me and a small team working very closely on figuring out how a large financial services company could enter the healthcare space and specifically the health insurance space. So for the next two or three years of my career, I was a founding member of an insure tech startup that was fully funded and, and an offshoot from Fidelity Investments. Uh, so it was a really cool experience to be able to, you know, get my get to try what entrepreneurship was all about, right? Actually get to build uh, hire a team, build process, build product, um, really just a very kind of eye-opening experience for me. One of, you know, the most interesting things about that experience, though, was that we didn't really need to have to fundraise capital. Capital was something we had a, a single investor, which was the mothership of Fidelity. And so I had never really thought about that as kind of capital as a piece of the equation and starting a business. Um, but you know, what became abundantly clear is that I wanted to spend more time with startups, either as a founder or as an investor or something just more entrepreneurial. And so I, I went back to grad school, which had which would always been kind of in the cards. And, and when I was there, I was very lucky to get involved with an organization called Dorm Room Fund. And for those of you who don't know it, Dorm Room Fund is a student-run venture capital group uh, backed by First Round Capital. And so the idea is to invest 20K checks into student-founded startups. And so here you are as a student in grad school, and now you are able to sit in the driver's seat and actually test run what a job of a VC is, meeting founders, evaluating companies, ultimately writing a check and then supporting those companies to grow. I absolutely fell in love with this. Uh, during my time there, I, I was able to invest in a ton of different student-founded startups. and. Uh, you know, realized that I wanted to make this my career full time. So uh, I was serendipitously introduced to Alex Iscold in my second year of business school, who was just starting out 2048 Ventures, and obviously happy to talk more about 2048. Uh, there was an incredible amount of mission and vision alignment. And, you know, when the opportunity presented itself, I kind of knew that I had to join. Uh, and so you fast forward about a year and, and here I Then did you disconnect? Nope, I, I I'm still here, Constantine. Oh, okay, because you suddenly went silent after I hit the table accidentally with my leg. <laughs> uh, 
so yeah, before we go into uh, 2048 Ventures, I would like to talk a little about this uh, dorms fund, fund dorms room. I forgot the name already. Gosh. Dorm room fund. Dorm room fund. All right. So this is a student run venture fund, right? So how, how does this work? Uh, can you, can uh, we go in, in depth into how this works? So who funds you? How does this, how is a share distributed? Do you have any carry interest in that? Uh, let's go into details. So it, it's basically an initiative that started, I want to say maybe around 10 years ago, uh, very organically at first round capital, which is one of the, the leading kind of seed stage investors in the US. And I think what they saw was that they wanted the ability to see what was going on on campus and build a community of exceptional kind of entrepreneurs and super mm -hmm. innovative people, but didn't know how to do that. And I think the, the key realization was that the best way to get in front of student entrepreneurs and to be in their ecosystem was to enable other students to kind of participate in that. So they tapped a few students to say, hey, like go on campus, let us know what interesting startups you're seeing and let's just have a conversation around those. And, and you kind of fast forward today, Dorm Room Fund kind of operates in, in four primary markets, uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and the Bay Area. And we are kind of a collection of students uh, across schools that come together totally on a voluntary basis to be able to fund our peers and their entrepreneurial endeavors. So we are not uh, compensated in any way through first round capital or through dorm room fund, um, whose sole LP, so the financial backing that we have is from first round capital. But our mission is, is very simple, to kind of fund student entrepreneurs and be able to give people the opportunity to evaluate whether they actually want to build a startup. And so, you know, I think of this sometimes as a student might have an amazing internship opportunity and they might have a startup idea at the same time. So our $20,000 can go a very long way for someone to be able to actually try out what it would be like to build a startup uh, over that summer instead of taking that lucrative internship opportunity. That makes right. sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's great those the, such funds as uh, Dorm Room Fund. Did I, did I remember it right? Yeah, you got it right this time. Nice. All right, I'm proud of myself. But yeah, I think that such funds really empower the students. I've seen tons and tons of really bright students, especially uh, when I was visiting USC Demo Day. I was really shocked. That's why I keep repeating about my experience at USC Demo Day because I was so shocked with what I saw there. But yeah, I think that such such funds are great. So do you think it do you invest through such funds in anyone non uh non-student so can someone outside of your specific uh, university reach out to this fund and try to actually raise money through them yeah so dorm room fund is pretty much exclusively focused on student founded startups and, and the definition of student is a little bit broad which is oftentimes great for entrepreneurs so it involves uh undergrads uh anyone in kind of a grad level program or even phds so the, re the real idea is to kind of find those pockets of innovation within these incredible universities. And, and while we're kind of headquartered in, in four different cities, we also have a program that students from any university around the country can actually apply for dorm room fund funding. 
Um, however, you know, if, if you're not a student or you're not a recent grad, a very recent grad within, you know, the last three to six months, it's, it's unlikely that dorm room fund would be a fit for you. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right. So now let's move from uh, dorm room fund to 2048 ventures, as this is our main subject for today. Can you tell us a little about what what does 2048 invest in? What do you like? What's the average check size? Absolutely. So we started 2048 Ventures about a year ago with a thesis that there was a little bit of a vacuum in the first institutional backing for companies that were differentiated through technology and all of these amazing markets around the US and Canada. So we think there's an incredible seed ecosystem and we wanted to go even earlier. We wanted to be the first capital into a business. So we raised a $28 million uh, fund one vehicle focused exclusively on being that first institutional backer for founders in a very sector and geo-agnostic way. So on the sector side, we are basically generalist investors. You know, we have a little bit of a skew towards B2B, but if you look at our portfolio, you will see everything from drones to genomics to enterprise software to a direct-to-consumer uh, shoe company and, and truly everything in between. The, the unifying thread between all of those companies is that they're building a differentiated technology product. Um, we also invest in a very geo-agnostic way. So we invest everywhere in North America, so both the U.S. and Canada, and we have an increasing focus on emerging tech cities. So we've been spending a lot of time, uh, for example, in, in Toronto, where there's just incredible talent. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, amazing things happening in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And while there are Canadian VCs, and you know, we work very closely with many of them, uh, we think, you know, it, it's an opportunity for us to get involved uh, and, and help kind of develop and, and grow an ecosystem. And the same goes for alternate markets kind of around the United States. So we spend a lot of time in, in Boston and Atlanta and Austin, and we're very open to kind of investing anywhere, which is, which is not something you typically see um, at the earliest stage. That's that's a good point. And here, uh, after those words, I really want to talk about how you source your deals. So how do you, you're present basically everywhere, many cities in the US, even Canada. So how do you find those deals? How do you how do you find those great entrepreneurs you want to invest in? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it candidly, it's something that we're we're still trying to figure out. We <laughs> have been incredibly fortunate and, and lucky to have kind of a good volume of deal flow. We love that model. We love to see uh, just a lot of companies. And, you know, I, I think I crunched the statistics a, a little while ago and just in like mostly the second half of 2019, we we looked at, you know, 2,900 companies. And so oh we are a small team of, of only four people right now, four investors and you know, looking through that volume of companies is no easy task. And so mm -hmm. how does a VC sitting in New York City, how are they able to see kind of 2,900 companies that are all across North America? And so there's a, there's a few pieces of the answer here. Um, the first one is that we are incredibly blessed to have kind of a, a strong existing network. All of us come from different walks of life. And so we can tap into the connections that we've we've had from from previous walks of life and 
and people are always reaching out and saying, "Hey, I just met this really cool startup, and you should you should take a look." And so we're super appreciative of those kind of introductions that folks provide us. Um, we are also very lucky to have a really strong LP base. So our limited partners, we have tons of ex-founders, angels, and other VCs. And so oftentimes, for some of these people, they're they're running into interesting startups that might not be a fit for their investment strategy. But you know, since we're we're somewhat aligned um, financially, they're they're very likely to to send us companies to take a look at. And what what's worth noting is that you know around fifty percent of our LP base is also kind of downstream VCs, where uh, companies that they bump into at the pre-seed level are simply too early for them. Most of them are, you know, late seed investors or, or, or series A investors. And so for them, it's a great opportunity to get a company in front of us. And and if we do ultimately invest, um, you know, they have kind of an early look into the company and, and see uh, what's developing in our pipeline as well. Um, two other kind of pieces of the strategy. Uh, one is just, you know, strong partnerships with uh, accelerator and incubator programs around North America. So Alex on my team used to run Techstars in New York uh, prior to starting 2048 Ventures. And so um, we we know how to kind of run this accelerator model. We know what accelerators are thinking about. Uh, and we, we try to get involved with office hours and try to be helpful to these programs in any way we can uh, so that we can also kind of see if there are investment opportunities there. And, and and lastly, um, you know, we're we're this is kind of what we're working on now is figuring out who are these super nodes and connectors on the ground in each of these ecosystems, and and how can we collaborate with them to to generate kind of this high volume of deal flow that we were talking about. That's great, and your deal flow is really impressive. So, twenty nine hundred presentations per year per, for half a year. That's that's insane. So let's talk about that a little bit. What what do you think are three must-have points on the pitch deck? Three must-have points on the pitch deck. Uh, this is a great question. We were lucky to see a lot of pitch decks, and and very quickly, I think it's easy to figure out what is a good pitch deck and and what isn't. Yep. I think you know things that that I personally look at. I, I won't speak for the whole team necessarily, but. I really like to see off the charts founder market fit. So at the pre-seed, you you know, and you probably have heard this many times, we're investing in in founders and then their businesses, mm-hmm. not in businesses and then the founders. And so you want to see founders who have just kind of a demonstrated track record of absolutely crushing it, whatever they've been doing. So we are very open to first-time founders. Um, we, act, in fact, love first-time founders, uh, but we want to see some form of demonstrated interest or demonstrated expertise in the field that they're chasing. So making sure that you are able to express that I am the right person to solve this problem is absolutely critical in the pitch deck. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, we only invest in in companies that are differentiated through technology. So we want to see some form of a unique or uh, kind of robust um, insight into the market that you're chasing. So what what about this space or what about your technology is so uniquely positioned to win this market? And I think this is absolutely critical and it can manifest itself in, in several ways in the pitch deck. 
Um, but that's kind of a theme that I, I really love to, you know, after glancing through a pitch deck, that's what I want to walk away with is that this founder has epic founder market fit and the technology and insights that they're bringing to this market are kind of poised for, for them to be able to quickly, you know, capture a lot of the market share or get a lot of customers really quickly. Um, and number three, the last thing I'll say is, is a bias for action. So the stage of companies that we're investing in, oftentimes there are no paying customers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's okay. Like we, we have funded many companies kind of on a pre-product and oftentimes pre-revenue basis as well. But we want to see, you know, even if it is a, uh, you know, a early, super early startup, do you still have people using the product? What experiments are you running to test whether people would be willing to pay for this product? How are you kind of hustling and just making stuff happen? Uh, we want to see kind of that dotted line path to how we could, you know, support this company to becoming a company with actual customers, with actual revenue and on a path to success. That's those are all three, I think, super important points, points especially the, the last one. I like it a lot. Traction and traction is the key for sure. So um, let's talk a little bit about coronavirus. How are you still investing and what do you think changed the most for the founders right now? Yeah, so this has uh, been kind of an interesting development. I feel if you pulled pretty much anybody in the world and ask them, what do you think the, the last thing to happen would be? I think most people would have said this, right? We None of us were <laughs> expecting this. This came out of, out of left field and we're all kind of in real time reacting, both founders and VCs and, and everybody in kind of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So I think there's a couple of points here. Um, the first is that given the the pandemic and what's kind of happening on a on a macroeconomic basis, I think many VCs are now focused on helping their existing portfolio get through these tough times. So if you look across industries and across categories, you'll quickly notice that most businesses are not immune to the effects of the pandemic. Uh, and very few are in fact seeing amazing growth due to these times. There's just a trickle down effect uh, on the macro basis and uh, in early stage startups oftentimes that takes a little bit longer to, to kind of appear there, but it certainly does happen. And so the VCs that have invested in these early stage startups are doing a couple of things. They're helping their their founders, the, the ones that they've already backed, decrease burn, uh, especially around discretionary expenses, right? They're saying, hey, if you have a million bucks in the bank, now you're spending maybe $100,000 a month. Are there ways for you to, to get this down easily without having to kind of lay off any, any staff and, and still make progress on both kind of product and growth, et cetera. We're also helping portfolio companies think about milestones. So maybe they had a milestone to double their revenue in 2020, and now you kind of have to have that conversation and it oh, yeah. has to be, oh, yeah. sorry, Constantine, did you say something? Yeah, I said, oh yeah, yeah but that turned out to be pretty loud yeah. for some reason. <laughs> That's all right. Um, and, and so we're we're helping you know companies think around on milestones and like what is actually achievable uh, given kind of the the macroeconomic uncertainty, and so 
working with the portfolio companies to get a true sense of runway um, is incredibly critical. And then for those portfolio companies that might be towards the tail end of their runway, so maybe have four to six months of kind of cash left to be able to run their business, it's very important for them to be able to raise additional follow-on financing. And so many VCs are very focused on this and making sure that the portfolio companies that they've already backed are, you know, are not going to wither away in the next six months. And so that seems to be kind of P1 across the industry. Um, however, at the same time, if you look, you know, in past economic recession, some of the best companies of our generation were born during these times. So, uh, you know, while, while there's kind of this natural instinct to, to, focus on the existing portfolio, I think there are a lot of VCs that are also being very opportunistic and saying there are a lot of good companies still being formed. In fact, we might see a higher rate of company formation than we did last year, potentially. And so how can we capitalize on that opportunity and how can we get in front of these founders uh, at the earliest stage? And so, uh, you know, every VC you ask is going to give you a slightly different answer. Uh, this like hashtag open for business is is going kind of viral on on uh, Twitter, um, but the reality is many are uh, many are in fact open for business, including twenty forty eight ventures. I think it's important for founders to you know ask the hard questions of where is this fund in their life cycle, right? What is their reserve strategy? Um, how many existing portfolio companies do they have, and do they actually have kind of capital to invest in company formation? Uh, and and kind of back founders at the earliest stage. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there. I'm happy to kind of touch upon any of that in detail. Sure. Before we go into detail, uh, first of all, I think something is wrong with the sound. Perfect. Sorry for that. So um, I wanted to discuss the difference between generalist investor and sector specialists. So for example, someone who is building something in deep tech or hard tech something that requires like specific set of skills, knowledge of the market. Do you think it makes sense for them to reach out first to uh, their sector specialists or to generalist investors? Uh, great question. And, and frankly, this is an everlasting debate in venture. The difference between generalist investors and sector specialists or thematic or thesis driven investors. And in my mind, I don't know if there's the right answer, right? I have seen uh, you know, personally, many investors that have been extremely successful in both camps here. Uh, so there are some of the best investors in the world are very thesis driven. At the same time, other best investors in the world are very generalist. Um, so I don't think there's a winning recipe here. Many models work. I do think for founders, uh, they should they should try to figure out their prospective investors and figure out which one of those two camps do they fall in, right? If you're if you're building something and you're going to a thesis-driven investor, for example, what you'll find is that if you don't fit their thesis, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to invest in you. And so, uh, you know, kind of on the on the other side of that coin is that if you are building something that's in their thesis vertical you may be much more likely to get a look um, or have the opportunity to have a conversation with that VC and, and the likelihood of getting funding might be slightly higher. 
So I, I don't think there's a right answer for founders. It's really kind of doing your due diligence on investors and understanding what makes them tick, what are they looking for in the market, and what are they going to invest in. And you should reach out to the VCs that you think have the highest amount of fit um, with with what you're building in your company. That's that's a good advice. So here I want to move on to our last two questions. And first of those two last questions is three main red flags that you, you often see during the presentations from the founders. Yeah. Um, you know, this might be a little bit of a cop-out answer, Constantine, but it's almost the inverse of what I said in the three must-have points on our pitch deck. So <laughs> I, I think the first is like no founder market fit. Um, you know, we see this happen surprisingly uh, a lot where you have a founder that may have spent 10 years in consumer retail and then the next day they say, hey, I'm building uh, this deep fintech type of startup. And there's always a question mark that kind of comes in your head of like, why you? Why would you build out of all the opportunities that these incredible founders have on the table? Like, what, what is it about this problem or this problem space that made them so attracted to it. And so uh, I think founder market fit, again, is just absolutely critical here. Um, and, and it's not that you have to have demonstrated that through prior experiences only. You can also earn founder market fit through hustling through a problem, making the right connections, and showing that you do have some expertise or credibility in the space. Um, the second, I'd say, is no path to Tech, technology kind of defensibility. And so uh, we are very unlikely to invest in a business that is kind of just pure financial arbitrage or, uh, you know, something that doesn't have tech that can be this true mode um, to help a company kind of stay defensible and, and grow even when competitors are entering the space. And so we want to see kind of this tech first approach in any business that we invest in. And kind of that brings me to, to point number three is that I think if you are building a technology business, we want to see a team that reflects that, right? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we meet founders that uh, don't have any technical expertise on the team. And, and the question is very simple. It's like, if you are building a tech business, who's building it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you want to see a team that's around um, a founder that you know, maybe there's a CTO or a VP of engineering, someone with a meaningful stake in building the actual technology right. uh, part of this business. Um, and, and it's not a, it's totally okay if, if that is not always in place, but there needs to be top of mind for founders. So they have a path to, to knowing that they're going to build out this full kind of complementary team around them to ultimately make their company successful. Right. That's, that's a good point as well. So let's move here to our last question, then we'll wrap it up. I like to end my episodes with the question, uh, what are the three first steps that the founder should take to get the first check from an investor? Yeah, this is, this is a good one. Um, and I think you'd probably see kind of highly variable answers on, on what works for some companies and, and what doesn't work for some companies. Uh, you know, I think the first one is you as a founder uh, need to absolutely think about fundraising almost as this discrete task that you want to bring an incredible amount of uh, rigor around. So 
this can't be this haphazard thing where you're going to meet different investors and letting kind of serendipity play its course. You need to be very tactical, create that list of here are the investors that I think would be perfect for my business and make a long list, right? Um, most investors say no, and that's just the nature of the business. And mm -hmm. you only do need one to say yes, but you ultimately want to make sure that's the right partner for you. And so managing the process, I think, is absolutely critical. Um, I will also say that when it comes to capital raising, you don't always need to start with VCs. Uh, venture, and many people have talked about this before, is, is a very incredibly expensive form of jet fuel. And so need to do that kind of initial thinking about what type of business do I, I want to build and is venture financing truly the best way for me to build that business? And if the answer is, is no or even maybe, you should potentially consider other forms of financing, right? There's there's mm -hmm. a lot of other programs, small business lending, that could also be alternative kind of good sources of capital for you to get a business off the ground. Um, you you should also start in your local market. So we we are you know geo agnostic investors. We in invest across U.S. and Canada, and in many of these markets, there are VCs. There are incredible angel investors. So. I always, you know, urge founders to to start locally. Think through who in your network has some form of a touch point to the investors there, or who could be strategic angels that you could have on your cap table, and try to mine that network as best as you can to get the introductions to the right people to kick off the fundraising process. Eventually, if you do need more capital, and maybe you know your geo is a little bit tapped out. You can look to other markets and you can look to venture funds like 2048 Ventures. Uh, but the, in my mind, there's no reason that you wouldn't start locally first. Absolutely. I think that's great advice, especially the second part of it, where you mentioned that VCs is basically not the only source of funding. And I think many founders uh, think that venture funds and angel investors are the only two sources of funding, which is completely wrong. So. If you think so, please check with the fundraising radio. There are tons of episodes that prove you're wrong. So, all right, we'll wrap it up here, Zan. Thanks a lot for coming up. Thanks for taking your time uh, to participate and share your knowledge. And thanks for doing this on Saturday morning. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Constantine. Thanks so much for having me.